The following episode of Can He Do That focuses on President Trump's choice to nominate Congressman John Ratcliffe for the Director of National Intelligence job. But as developing news tends to go, things have changed since we published it. Trump announced Friday afternoon that Ratcliffe has decided instead to stay in Congress. Trump, though, also tweeted that he'll announce his new pick for intelligence chief soon. And so, good news. The information in this episode is still important. What laws apply to a president when he's trying to appoint the people he wants to the highest roles in our government? And who has the power to enforce those laws? Stay tuned to find out in this episode. We think you'll like it. President Trump announced last Sunday that the director of national intelligence, Daniel Coates, will leave his position in mid-August. Coates and Trump were known to have a contentious relationship, and so this resignation wasn't completely unexpected. But since the director of national intelligence is nominated by the president and then confirmed by the Senate, the more surprising moment came in Trump's announcement of who he plans to nominate to replace Coates. That person is Texas Republican Congressman John Ratcliffe. Ratcliffe has been one of the biggest critics of perceived anti-Trump bias, both at the FBI and in the special counsel's Russia investigation. Ratcliffe also has significantly less national security experience than past directors of national intelligence. So some intelligence officials have questioned whether Ratcliffe might use the DNI position to serve Trump's political interests. As it turns out, there are laws that outline who a president can nominate to the DNI position. And Ratcliffe might not meet those requirements. So can existing law stop Trump from nominating Ratcliffe? Meanwhile, Trump also said in his tweet that an acting intelligence director will be named shortly. But alas, there are laws on this too. Laws that specify who will take on the acting director role in the event of a vacancy. So is Trump suggesting he plans to ignore those laws and make a different choice for acting director? And can anyone really hold him accountable if he does? This is Can He Do That, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. I'm Allison Michaels. I turned to The Washington Post's intelligence and national security reporter, Shane Harris. I asked him to explain to me exactly what the director of national intelligence is supposed to do. So nominally, anyway, uh, he is or she supposed to coordinate the functions of the intelligence community. What that means in practical terms is sort of sit on top of the 17 agencies that make up what we call the intelligence community, make sure that they're collaborating, that they're connecting the dots the way they should, that there's nothing falling between the cracks. This is a post 9-11 creation. So think about it in terms of trying to make sure we don't have a repeat of what happened before 9-11, where FBI and CIA and NSA were kind of off doing their own thing to try and stop terrorist attacks and they weren't coordinating. So that's one. Uh, has a lot of authority over the budgets, presenting the budget of the Congress, deciding where that money is going to go, and is the president's what's known as the principal intelligence advisor. So essentially, is supposed to kind of be the voice from the intelligence community to the president, which is not to say there aren't other people the president talks to in those agencies, but he is kind of like the top dog and the public face a lot of times. The purpose of this role is to primarily serve the president or to primarily serve the intelligence community? Both. And that's Both. a really good 
good. That's a really good point. So it is it is there to be the president's intelligence advisor to be able to say, Mr. President, this is what the intelligence community's view on North Korea is or what we think about Iran's nuclear weapons program or Russian election interference, but also to then be the manager or the chairman of the board, if you like, of all these different intelligence agencies and represent them before Congress. I mean, in theory, it doesn't always work out that way. But on paper, the the ambition of the office has always been kind of like that that chief person sitting on the top acting as like a supreme manager. And the intelligence community overall is supposed to operate largely independent of the executive. Well, it's an executive branch agency, right? Mm-hmm. But it's supposed to provide unvarnished, independent assessment and analysis. It's not meant to be a political apparatus. Mm-hmm. So it's there to tell the president, members of Congress, senior members of the cabinet policymakers, this is what we think about what's going on the world in the following issue or the following country. It also plays a role, too, in the carrying out of covert actions. So if the president decides that he wants to operate a covert operation in Iran against its nuclear weapons program, the DNI is also there by law to help guide that process through and advise on that. Got it. So Dan Coats has been serving as the director of national intelligence. He recently submitted his letter of resignation. Do we know what led to his decision to resign? It was a long time coming. Dan Coates is sort of a dead man walking for the past <laughs> year or so. The, the, the problem with Coates and Trump had largely been one that, A, had kind of erupted in public where you saw him take, I don't want to say take positions, but save say facts <laughs> that contradicted the untrue things that the president was saying or the squishier things that the president would say. For instance, when he testified Dan Coates that we assess Iran is not currently trying to build a nuclear weapon. That is true. The president liked to go out and say Iran is not is in violation of the nuclear deal. Well, not really. I mean, they may be doing things you don't like that weren't covered by the deal, but that's not what Dan Coates said. So they had these kind of points of friction. And then privately, I'm told they had, you know, good days and bad days, basically. And mm-hmm. Dan Coates was not somebody who was going to just sort of bite his tongue and not argue with the president. And I think the president was sort of annoyed by him. So you would hear these rumors flare up over time. Dan Coates is about to be fired. Then he would live on for a couple of months. So when he finally did submit his letter of resignation, it was mutual. They worked out the date and nobody was surprised about it. And Coates had a long history of service as a person in the intelligence community? Not in the intelligence community per se. He had been in Congress. He had served twice in the Senate. uh, And he had been the U.S. ambassador to Germany. He was there on the 9-11 attacks, actually. And Germany became a key partner in what we then called the War on Terror because there were al-Qaeda terrorist cells in Germany. So he kind of played a a key role there, both, you know, as a a diplomat, but also in a country where we were going to start to have a big intelligence presence. But never a job in the intelligence community, which is not unheard of. What what the job requires in the law is extensive national security experience is how they phrase it. And arguably, he had that. He'd been on the Senate Intelligence Committee, so he was familiar with the oversight process, how to handle classified information, but he'd never run an intelligence agency. I want to return to that point about what the law says regarding the experience of the person who sits in this position. Specifically, because Trump has since said that he intends to nominate a Representative John Ratcliffe from Texas, a Republican congressman, one of the most conservative members of the House. Who is this man? What's his background? So he's a third-term congressman. Probably most Americans first got a glimpse of him last week during the hearings with uh, Special Counsel Robert Mueller, where he had a couple of times to question Mueller and really lit into him, very critical of the investigation, questioning why it was begun, how it was handled. That is kind of his MO. He's been one of the more reliable critics of the Russia investigation and defenders of the president for the past year and is really trafficked in conspiracy theories about how the probe began, you know, things like 
like, was the Steele dossier somehow used to prop up the investigation? The Steele dossier being these memos that were compiled by a former British intelligence agent suggesting there may be some connection between Trump and Russia revolving around election hacking. So Ratcliffe is kind of in that camp. Before he was a member of Congress, he served briefly as the U.S. attorney in the Eastern District of Texas. He was actually serving in an acting capacity between politically appointed U.S. attorneys. And he was a prosecutor in the National Security Division out there. And he has said that he worked on a number of terrorism and national security cases. There's been reporting in the past few days coming out that shows that he inflated in some of those cases what his role actually was, that he wasn't really prosecuting so much as maybe overseeing an office or maybe prosecuting things tangential to some cases. So it seems that there was some resume inflation around his, which I guess you would call his already fairly thin national security credentials. So then are there specific requirements or qualifications that a DNI must legally have? There are. So the law in 2004 that created the position of the DNI, it's called the Intelligence Reform and Terrorism Prevention Act, or IRTPA. Uh, It says, quote, any individual nominated for appointment as director of national intelligence shall have extensive national security expertise. So extensive and expertise are the two words there. So it's it's pretty clear in spelling out you can't you can't come into this job as someone who has never had extensive experience in this. Now you could debate the word meaning the word extensive, mm-hmm. right? Probably the best way to judge is to look at the previous occupants of that position. Yeah, how does um, Ratcliffe compare? He, he just doesn't. Objectively, I think it's fair to say that. Jim Clapper, who uh, was the DNI under Obama for a long time before Coates, was a career intelligence officer, 30-plus years. Uh, Mike McConnell had held that job before he used to run the National Security Agency. He was a career intelligence officer. The first person ever to have was a guy named John Negroponte, career ambassador. He not worked in the intelligence community, but worked at the highest levels of national security security in the government, career diplomat. So you're in that universe. When we say national security, that includes like defense, military, diplomacy. It's kind of a, it's a big world. John Ratcliffe just doesn't have a resume that really even comes close to any of those people's. So then is he likely to get confirmed in the Senate? He very well may. <laughs> so the, the question that's, I mean, ultimately, this is a political calculation. It, it's difficult to imagine this Republican Senate rebuffing the president on a nomination More likely, I think, would be that if he is in trouble and there are signs that his nomination is not being particularly strongly or warmly received by Republicans, I could envision the scenario more that the president just never nominates him and it kind of fades away in August (laughs) during Mm -hmm. the summer break. Uh, It's a little more challenging to think about if he's nominated the Republicans actually rejecting him. That would be such repudiation. But the Republicans, I think, are sending signals to the White House that, you know, this guy, not so much. This is not what we think of when when we classically think of someone to be DNI. And we've seen that happen before in a few cases when President Trump has signaled that he intends to nominate somebody and the Republicans have sort of quietly pushed back before they've made it to the confirmation hearing. Yeah, and that could happen again here and just everyone could save. Hi, everyone. I'm investigative journalist Kylie Lowe, and I'm here to tell you about my weekly podcast, Dark Down East. Each episode, I take you to my home in New England, where we truly get to know the people at the center of the cases we dive into. Join me and dig into some cases you won't hear about anywhere else. Listen to new episodes of Dark Down East every Thursday, or check out the extensive catalog of existing episodes now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Okay, so when Trump tweeted about Coates' resignation, he said that the acting director will be named shortly. 
But the law, as I understand it, establishing the intelligence director's office says that in the event of a vacancy, the principal deputy director will serve in the acting role. There is an existing deputy director, right? There is. Her name is Sue Gordon. She's a career intelligence officer. Uh, she is uh, admired in uh, both sides of the island, Capitol Hill, has a lot of big fans in the executive branch. She is the principal deputy director. She's the number two. And you're quite right that the law clearly says that in the event that the number one is gone, <laughs> the number two becomes the number one. It gets a little bit tricky later in the law because there is this reference to the Federal Vacancies Reform Act, uh, which we re really want to torture ourselves. But we we've done out. it before on the show. <laughs> so you Let's know do it, it again. Well. Let's do it. <laughs> but j just to say it again, the Federal Vacancies Reform Act is essentially a, a law from 1998 that lays out a formal process for filling vacancies in the executive branch and, and sets limits on how long an official can work in an acting capacity. It's interesting the law sort of acknowledges that the Vacancies Reform Act is out there. But then it does something that gives another wrinkle. It essentially says, yes, that applies except for the director of national intelligence. So there have been people who have pointed out that, for instance, when the president wanted to appoint a new secretary of defense, this issue of the Vacancies Reform Act came up. Or the Consumer Financial Protection Board, this issue came up. Here we've got a statute that very clearly says what's supposed to happen and then says – even though you've got this Federal Vacancies Reform Act, for this particular position in this office, that being DNI, what the law says is supposed to happen is what's got to happen here. The law controls. So people I've talked to about this say it's, it's not clear how the president could simply get around the fact that Sue Gordon is now the acting number one once Coates leaves, unless, of course, you get rid of Sue Gordon. Do we have any indication that he will get rid of Sue Gordon? So the best indication might be the fact that he did not come right out and say, and Sue Gordon, as of August 15th, when Coates resigns, will be the acting DNI. The president kept, keeps saying, we're going to announce the acting DNI soon, which has left a lot of us scratching our heads saying, but she's sitting right there. Mm -hmm. So if you're saying you're going to announce it soon, that would suggest that you might be thinking Sue Gordon is not going to be that person he would have to fire her or she'd have to resign. You'd have to move her out, find a new number two to become the acting number one. And if he does that, are there ways for him to face consequences? So my understanding here is that there are laws that govern what the president should do next, and he might be potentially disregarding those laws and sort of doing what he wants. He'd have to make a strong argument for it to defend it. The way he might be able to do this is if she retires or she moves to another position, and then he says, OK, the law says this is the kind of person I can get to be the new number two. And by the way, it says stuff about that as well. Mm -hmm. The new number, the number two has to be not only a person with significant nat national security expertise, but also managerial expertise because the deputy director is seen as like the COO, right? So you got to find somebody who has arguably more credentials <laughs> in some respects or extra credentials than the person you're trying to find to fill the top job. If he could do that, it has to be a Senate-confirmed position. So theoretically, you could take the director of the National Counterterrorism Center, who is a Senate-confirmed official uh, within the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, bump him over, make him the number two. He becomes the acting number one. It's not clear to me what why the president wants to do that. If the idea is that you want to get rid of Sue Gordon because you want like a loyalist or a team player in there, you got to find another one of those people to sit in that number two job until Ratcliffe gets confirmed. And if the president tries to do this, it's going to be very controversial because the law is not only unambiguous on who the acting number one is supposed to be, 
But Sue Gordon is very well respected by Democrats and Republicans on the Hill. And in fact, Richard Burr, the Republican chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee, which is the controlling committee in all of this, made very clear in a statement, yeah, we'll handle Ratcliffe, as he said, in regular order, like not the most ringing endorsement of the guy, did not speak about his credentials, and said, in the meantime, we very much look forward to working with Sue Gordon, who has always been a friend of this committee. That is him saying to the White House, don't try this. Mm -hmm. She is the acting. She's the one we want to work with. There's going to be a problem if you try any shenanigans here. Mm -hmm. But what kind of problem could there really be? Oh, I mean, he's, I mean, who's really going to hold him accountable? Right. right. This is a question. (laughs) It's it's something that on this show comes up again and again, because, you know, basically the means of recourse are a lawsuit, I suppose. Right. And I don't think that that's reasonable to think that that would happen. So, I mean, I suppose at the end of the day, the president could sort of push his way through and get whoever he wants to have in there. I think where he runs into some potential risk is that this position is, it is an important one. It is seen as vital to national security. That's one. Number two, Ratcliffe does not have a lot of supporters behind him. And number three, Sue Gordon does. So politically, he would get a lot of blowback from Republicans. But to your point of how would you actually stop him from doing it? I don't see any real practical way that would happen. So then let's sort of round this conversation out by talking about Trump's existing relationship with the intelligence community and how this potential appointment of Radcliffe or this potential nomination of Radcliffe might affect that relationship. So the relationship is not great. Publicly, the president seems to delight in putting the intelligence agencies down, deriding their intelligence, saying that they're wrong, they should go back to school, which is what he said after Coates testified about Iran and North Korea and said things that were the opposite of what the president was saying. Just this week, he came out and said, I want a new DNI who's tough and will rein in the intelligence agencies because they've run amok. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, Privately, there are some people in the community he has better relationships with. His relationship with the CIA director, Gina Haspel, is pretty good. It seems pretty even keeled. Um, But if he brings in a guy like Ratcliffe, who not only doesn't have experience, but is so clearly a political loyalist and really a partisan warrior for the president, it's going to make many people in the intelligence community very uncomfortable because he has already accused elements of that community of engaging in some kind of a conspiracy the deep state. against the president. The, the deep state, exactly. This is the, So this guy is like basically coming in to be the director of the deep state. <laughs> is that, I guess you could put it from the president's point of view. Trump loves that. He's already said again publicly, he likes Ratcliffe, he's strong, I want to rein people in. If you're saying to the intelligence agencies, I'm sending this guy in here to rein you in because I think you've run amok, I mean, they're going to react to that. That's, he's not going to be well received. That said, I mean, intelligence officers. They are kind of the consummate professionals. Keep your head down. They play the long game. We'll make it through this. They really do just kind of like, you know, soldier through it and push through it. A lot will depend on what kind of a DNI Ratcliffe would be. If he comes in and he kind of falls more into the traditional model and he like cuts out the deep state rhetoric uh, and stands up for them and says, yes, I agree that North Korea is unlikely to give up its nuclear weapons. Yes, I agree that Russia interfered in the elections. By the way, he will be asked every one of those questions in his confirmation hearing. Mm -hmm. If he says he disagrees, that could actually sink him. Mm -hmm. You can't come out there and say, I disagree with the intelligence that literally every intelligence director in this government has said is accurate. But if he does all those things and he sort of is no longer seen as a partisan warrior, okay, fine, we get through it. If he uses that position to start regularly beating up the deep state and selectively declassifying information from the Russia investigation, uh, it's going to be a very different scenario. 
All right, Shane, thank you so much yeah. for your time. Thanks. This has been another episode of Can He Do That? It turns out that the Washington Post and the Partnership for Public Service together track roughly 700 key executive branch nominations, where they stand in the confirmation process, who Trump has nominated, whether or not they've been confirmed, who's acting, what vacancies remain. You can check all of that out at WashingtonPost.com. Thanks so much for listening. Can He Do That is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by the earnest Carol Alderman, with design help from Kat Rudell-Brooks, logo art from Loren Boglio, and theme music by Ted Muldoon. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. 